Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for being here in church this morning. Uh, it's 10.59. We're going to have you out by 11.30 so you can enjoy all of the bounty and the goodness that is in our cafe straight after the service. But this morning, uh, we're going to open up the Word. We're going to open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, hands up, who anyone knows what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and uh, fantastic. Um, Dean, you don't count. You have to know... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. 1 <laughs> Samuel 17, we'll start at verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Socho. Did I mispronounce that? Socho? Socho? Um, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Socho and Ezekah in their Ephes Damnon. <laughs> and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Um, that's tall in, in uh, layman's English. Uh, or very tall, maybe he's probably more appropriate. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is um, translated as very heavy. He was very tall and he wore very heavy armour. Uh, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come up to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now this is, uh, you've got to picture the, the, the topography, you know, the landscape as you will. So you have uh, two mountains. You have one mountain on one side, uh, which uh, the Philistine army is encamped on. And then we have on the other side another mountain, which the Israelite army um, was encamped on, and then a valley in between. In the valley, the idea was that's where they would uh, do battle. You know, this isn't anything new. This is something that had been going on for hundreds of years. The Philistines and the Israelites have been fighting off and on for over a few, uh, since um, since uh, Joseph and the people of Israel entered the Promised Land. You know, this is something that had been going on for many, many years. And um, the Israelites had had some wins. And recently, uh, if you remember the story of Jonathan in, in Michmash, uh, Michmash, that sounds funny as well. What are all these place names? Uh, in chapter 14, you know, Jonathan famously uh, went up and defeated the, Phil uh, the Philistine army. Uh, but the Philistines, they didn't want to just fight um, and have a nice little fight and then go their separate way and go back home and go, well, that was a lot of fun. Just like we do maybe on the football field as two teams come together and they battle over the red leather ball and then they all go, go back home and, and have their schnitzels together afterwards. You know, 
The Philistine army uh, had come and their intention was to, to utterly destroy Israel and to wipe them off of the face of the planet. You know, they were the, they were, they, they, there was no love. There was no, um, no idea of reconciliation. There was just an army that wanted to wipe uh, Israel off of the map. And Israel wanted the same thing. They wanted to push Israel out to the sea. And, you know, this story sounds familiar. Um, it's one of the most well-known Bible stories. And you could go anywhere. You could talk to anyone and they know the story of David and Goliath. They know even if they just know that David and Goliath represents the underdog fighting the giant. Um, but it's the same story that's been on loop for millennia. The kingdom of darkness, the Philistines versus the kingdom of light. You know, John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, uh, the devil comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I might have come that you might have life and life abundantly. You know, we have on one side the devil who wants to steal to kill and to ultimately destroy. He wants to bring you to a place of ultimate destruction. You know, He doesn't want to just come and give you a bit of a rattle every now and then and then go back home and, and have a, you know, a glass of cordial. He wants to utterly destroy you. He wants you to be in a place of complete destruction. That means financially, that means relationally. He, he wants to come after your family. He wants to come after your children, after your marriage, after your finances. You see, the devil isn't just playing like a game of chess and then you know, he, he battles and you have your game of chess and then he's done. He's come to bring ultimate destruction. I mean, that's a really entertaining thought for us this morning. But over here, no, my pleasure, we have God, we have Jesus who says, the devil's come to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life in the full. He wants your family to be prosperous. He wants your children to be prosperous. He wants your children to walk with Him, to be healthy, to be whole, to, to walk in all of the fruit that goes before them. He wants your marriage to be strong and He's fighting for your marriage. He wants a, a strong unity between husband and wife. He's fighting for this church. He's come to bring life into your finances. We're not called to live just in debt for the rest of our lives, but we're called to live in prosperity. We're called to come live it, to live abundantly. So we have on this one side the devil who's come to steal, to kill and destroy. And we have on the other side, we have uh, Jesus who's come to bring life and life abundantly. And sometimes you might feel like you're in a bit of a battle. You know, you might feel like at the end of the day, like, man, I just feel like I've been hit by a Mack truck. Well, i got to tell you, you feel like you're in a battle because you are in a battle. The devil hates you and he sends giants to you all the time. He sends giants in the form of uh, massive electricity bills. He sends giants to you in the form of um, relationship issues at work or an annoying boss. Or he sends giants to you, uh, to your children where maybe they're getting bullied at school or maybe there's relationship issues between you and your children. The devil will send giants to, 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 to bring about that ultimate destruction. And if it feels like you're in a battle, it is because you are in a battle. You know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says that God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. Ultimately, the devil hates God. And that's where this all stems from. The devil hates God because the devil wants to be God. The devil wants to be the one that receives all of the worship. He wants to supplant God. But when God created us, He created us in His own image. And so therefore, the devil 
hates us because we carry the image of the Creator. We carry the image of the King of Kings. We carry the image of Jehovah Jireh. He lives inside of us and the devil hates the Spirit of God that's inside of us. And it's the same tactic that's been recycled over millennia. You know, since the dawn of time, the battle of darkness versus light. You know, in we see it in the form of vicious racism. We see it in the form of um, World War II and the genocides that take place. We see ultimately the devil wants to come and bring physical destruction to us. The thing that was standing between the Philistines who wanted to bring ultimate destruction to the nation of Israel, who wanted to see the, the, the women and children, uh, they wanted to see everything done. They wanted to see that whole nation, not just move out of the promised land, but they actually wanted to destroy them. And the thing that stood between the women and the children and the livestock and the property, the thing that stood between ultimate destruction and that Philistine army was the army of Israel, was that Israelite army. And when we read this story, we see that there was an army that was standing between the Philistines and this nation being wiped out. But the army was actually all just crippled with fear. Goliath would come out come out day after day and he'd, he'd send out his challenge and they'd all literally just run away. You know, this is uh, the mighty nation of Israel. This is the, the Israelite army that had just won a battle over the Philistines in, Jonathan chap- in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 14. You know, this is the nation of Israel with Saul as their king, who it says was head and shoulders above everyone else. And he was handsome and he had everything. He was the king. Even he was hiding in fear. But there was one person and there was someone special about David. You see, David had been in the paddock looking after the sheep and his dad comes to him and asks him to deliver some supplies because his brothers are fighting in the Israelite army that's camped up on that hill. And in 1 Samuel 17, verse 22, we're told that David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, the champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. So Goliath comes out while David's there visiting his brothers, extends his challenge. David sees the army run away in fear. And then David says, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? You see, something stirred within David, something stirred within him that said, how long can this go on? How long can the army who represents the church hide in fear? Every time a giant comes, every time um, a COVID rears his head and we hide in fear every time the thought of religious persecution or we can't say this or we can't say that. Every time a giant comes and and the army or the church hides in fear when in reality all they need is a champion. All they need is a David that will stand up. 1 Samuel 17, moving on to verse 48, it talks about how David eventually defeats and kills uh, Goliath with his sling and his spear, a sling and a stone, and it says that David used his sword to to kill to kill him and to cut off Goliath's head. You see, it wasn't the the king, it wasn't 
King Saul, the man who had been amazingly anointed as king earlier on, the man who was head and shoulders above everyone else, who had the flash armour, he had the chariots, he had everything that he needed to win. It wasn't the army, the battle-hardened army that had been fighting the Philistines over years and years. It wasn't the mighty warriors. It wasn't David's older brothers that stood up and defeated the giant. It was David, the shepherd boy. It was David, the, the kid that was out the back, not the king with his armour and his shield and his spear, not Jonathan, the king's son, the hero of the battle of Michmash, not one of David's older brothers or one of the battle-hardened warriors, but the shepherd boy with nothing but a sling and a stone. You know, I honestly believe that anyone that was assembled on that hill on that day in the Israelite army, if they'd taken a little bit of gumption and stepped out in faith, that they could have been the ones that killed Goliath, but instead they chose to hide in fear. If they had had what David had, if they did what David did, then that battle could have been over days ago, weeks earlier. But the devil is a liar. He comes and he attacks with fear. He brings giants that push people into, into hiding and into submission. But we need a church full of Davids that will stand up, that will stand up against the giants that come against us because the devil is defeated. He's under your feet. And just like David, I believe that you can defeat any giant that comes at you. You know, it could be you. It doesn't have to be the pastor. It doesn't have to be the preacher, the evangelist or the prophet. It doesn't have to be the special person who you view as specially endowed. You don't have to have multiple titles at the front of your name. (laughs) Reverend Doctor, although we respect and honour those. You don't have to be the one that's been away and learnt something special or unique at some special school or you've been away and you've studied at the rabbi. You don't have to be the one that studied at Well Changes College of Ministry like me. You know, you don't, you can be David. All it takes is someone who has what David has. And this morning, I want to look at four things from David that set him apart for victory. Number one, the first key was that David was anointed. 21 verses before this happens, David was, before David was sent to visit his brothers, Samuel comes and he anoints him with oil. 1 Samuel 16 verse 13. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he'd bought out and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. It's a beautiful place, so I've heard. Under the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon one person for one reason, for a specific season. The Spirit of God came upon David, and at that same time, if you read on, the Spirit of God left Saul. The anointing went from Saul and it went to David. You know, Moses was anointed to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Joshua was anointed to take them into the promised land. Gideon was anointed with his army of 300, Samson and his supernatural strength. And then Saul was anointed as king. And then ultimately, David was anointed as king. You see, when the anointing was in the old covenant, it was exclusive. But in the New Testament, since Christ's death, burial and resurrection, since the coming of the Holy Spirit, The anointing, the Spirit of God, isn't for one person, but it's for all of us. 
The anointing is in each and every one of us. The anointing of heaven is something that we should be striving for. It's the power of the Holy Spirit inside us to do the call that God has given us to do. It says that you know the, the anointing is a divine empowering to do the task that God has called you to do. Simply, the anointing gives you two things. It, it fills you with power to outwork the plans of God and all that God has called you to do. And it will make what you have called to do flow with ease. You know, have you ever driven a car without, without power steering in it? You know, when I learned to drive back in 1953, um, no, I learned to drive in not that long ago. You know, I learned in a car that didn't have power steering. Man, people before power steering must have had bulging biceps and massive shoulders because that's a very difficult thing to do. But as soon as the car, you know, sometimes you jump out of that car, you jump into another car with power steering and it's easy. It flows. You know, it's just like us when we jump into the anointing, when we jump into the river, when we search after the anointing and strive for it and and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us and, and look for that. It makes things in our life go easy. Those things that we've battled and that we've struggled against, those things that seem difficult like a rusty gate, it's like putting a bit of WD-40 on the hinges. You know, we need the power of God. We need the anointing of heaven because it makes things flow. The other thing is it gives us the power to do what we've been called to do. And I'm a big Fast and Furious fan. I probably watched the first 38 of them. Um, There's a lot of Fast and Furious movies. But if you watch Fast and Furious, they have what's in their cars, nitrous oxide, and they'll be driving and the car will be maxed out and the car will be doing all that it can do. And then they press a button on their steering wheel and it inserts the nitrous oxide into the engine and it gives the car the power that it needs to to win the race. You know, the Holy Spirit, the anointing of heaven, it makes things flow. It's like power steering. But it also gives us the power that we need to do what we've been called to do. It gives us the power to make the ordinary extraordinary. The anointing is what takes the shepherd boy and makes him a king. The anointing is what takes you when you're, you're struggling in your family and in your marriage. The anointing is a thing that will make that easy and that will make it flow easily. The anointing is a thing that maybe you're struggling in your workplace with relationship issues or you're struggling in your finances and you're not sure how things are going to work. Then can I tell you, we need to get the anointing of heaven. We need to get the anointing in our lives as a parent, as a worker, in any ministry that we're doing, it's the anointing. You know, I can stand up here and preach and all I'd be doing is flapping my gums and words would be coming out of my mouth. But without the anointing of heaven, it means nothing because it's the anointing that brings transformation. It's the anointing that changes hearts. We need the anointing in our lives. To get more anointing, you need to get in the presence of God. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. We need to get into the presence of God. We need to put the worship on. We need to read the Word. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to prioritise the secret place. We need to make sure that we're here at church. We need to pray. Four keys from David to set us apart for victory. The first one is David was anointed. Secondly, David was a servant. David knew that he was Destined for so much more and he's out the back of the paddock. He knows there's a fight going on, but he'd just been anointed as king and he's out the back of the paddock looking after some sheep. And I can imagine him lying there under a tree thinking, what am I doing here? What am I doing in this paddock? What am I doing using a rock as a pillow? What am I doing hanging out with these sheep? 
who we all know aren't the most cleverest animals in the entire universe. You know, I'm called to be king. I'm anointed. I'm, I'm meant to be the king of Israel. I'm filled with the Spirit of God. But David ultimately had the heart of a shepherd, of, of, of a servant. When David should have been leading the army as the king, he was delivering the supplies. He was taking a cheese platter to his, to his brothers. I mean, that's ultimately what it was, a bit of cheese and some bread. And if anyone wants to be a David and serve us some cheese and bread, I'm all for it. You know, uh, he was Saul's minstrel. He was playing the harp for Saul. He was, he, was, he was serving. All the while, he should have been the king. You know, I'd love it if we all had the heart of a servant. I remember long before I ever preached on the platform, I was cleaning the toilets. You know, I was in kids' ministry for, for years and, and there was kids' toilets and after everyone had gone, I'd be the one that had to go in and, and clean it and wipe everything up. You know, that's, that's the heart of a servant. You know, I knew from 19, 18, I knew as a child that I was called to preach. I knew that I was called to be a pastor. I wasn't called to clean toilets, but I can tell you every one of us is called to serve. We're all called to serve. And I'll say that for three week, three reasons. Serving, number one, serving refines our character. It breaks away strongholds that the enemy can use in our life. It strips away bad attitudes. It strips away pride. It strips away entitlement. It strips away laziness. Number two, serving builds the skills that were needed for your next season. You know, the, the paddock for David was the preparation ground for him to walk in the palace. It's there that he learned to kill the lion. It's there that he learned how to kill the bear. It's there that he uh, wrote a lot of his psalms. He wrote a lot of his worship. It was in the paddock that David uh, learned how to shepherd people and to shepherd sheep. You know, the place of the paddock is the place of your preparation. You know, when we serve, it prepares us for the next season that we're about to walk into. You know, even for me, uh, serving in kids ministry, um, looking after a bunch of kids and not really knowing what I was doing, but it was really preparing me for pastoring as I move forward. Everything that I've done has prepared me to serve where I am now. And thirdly, Jesus himself came to serve and I choose to follow the example of Christ. Matthew 20, 25 says, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. You know, for us in this church, I would love it if we were all able to be in a position where we can serve, maybe even if it's only just once a month. You know, I'd love to have an army of people that are greeting and welcoming people on the door as this church continues to grow and families join us. I'd love an army of kids volunteers and people serving in our pantry and in the nature playgroup. You know, for us to have the heart of a servant, but not only in here in our, in our church and in our spiritual home, but in our physical homes at home. You know, one of the big things in our house is that none of us is a king. Um, Emily sometimes acts like a queen and is a little bit bossy, but we're ultimately... <laughs> I shouldn't have said that with you in here. I apologise, Emily. You're beautiful and I love you. But ultimately, we're all servants. We're all, we all serve in our house. You know, if someone's left a bowl, then it might not be your bowl, but you can put it on the sink. You know, I'm here to serve my wife. I serve my wife. I... Do whatever, you know, I think I can do to help make her life easy and to make her life comfortable. One of the big things I do is I make many cups of tea for her. 
You know, I'm always putting the kettle on. Do you want a cup of tea? You know, I'm the one that serves her. And in turn, she serve, we serve each other. Because in our house, we're a house of service. You know, sometimes we want the palace. Sometimes we want all of the glory and the fame and we want the pulpit, but we're not willing to be in the paddock. Sometimes we want the pulpit, but we're not willing to clean the toilets. Sometimes we want the glory and the, and the fame and everything, but we're not willing to do what David did, which is to be in the paddock. We need to serve in the paddock before we can get to the palace. Four keys from David to set you apart for victory. David was anointed. David was a servant. And thirdly, David had grit. So grit is courage and resolve. It's a strength of character. It's gumption. An unwavering conviction and ability to move forward no matter the obstacle. You know, I think of David, his brothers mocked him. Saul tried to dissuade him. He was abandoned in the back paddocks and the back blocks of Bethlehem, but he didn't give up. It was 15 years between David being anointed before he walked in as king, before he got coronated. In that time, he fought a lion. He fought a bear. He defeated Goliath. He lived in fear of his life as Saul ultimately tried to kill him and he hid in the desert and he lived in a cave. You know, David had an amazing talent and an amazing ability to keep pushing forward no matter the obstacle. It was perfectly reasonable for David to give up at any one of those times. You know, I'm not the type of guy that's incredibly brave or courageous. I don't know if I could have fought Goliath. Um, I believe I could have defeated him with the Lord's help and the anointing. But I'm not, I'm not that, you know, but we all need to have that level of grit. When, when your marriage is under attack and the devil is coming at you and he's, he's throwing things at you and, you and as a husband and wife, your marriage and your relationship's under attack, it takes grit to keep moving forward. It takes grit to keep going, to pick yourself up, to dust yourself off, to keep pushing and keep moving forward. And some days we can feel like giving up. Some days it's incredibly difficult. Some days I do feel like throwing in the towel in different areas of my life. We all do. It's natural. It's normal. Life is tough. Life is difficult. But every morning I choose to get up, get out of bed, thank God for the goodness of him, of, of, in my life and continue to move forward in the things of God. No matter what comes my way, I choose to keep taking a step of faith. I choose to keep praying. I choose to keep giving. I choose to think the best of my wife and to serve my children. I choose to serve my church family. I choose to keep moving forward because ultimately, even though things are awful, He makes beauty for ashes. He gives us the oil of joy for mourning. Ultimately, the devil, he will come and he'll attack you. But if you keep pushing forward, God has something in store for you. There's beauty on the other side of your mountain. If you can push through, keep fighting, never give up. There is blessing on the other side. You know, sometimes we stop and we sit, but we need to get up and we need to keep moving forward. You know, I can imagine David would have been comfortable in that paddock leading those sheep. I imagine even after he'd fought Goliath, he thought, well, I've done that. That's the giant in my life. I've got him done. But David chose to keep moving forward, to keep pressing forward. So many times he could have given up. I think of the, the Apostle Paul. He was flogged, whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. And then he tells Timothy, 
In his letter to Timothy, he says, run the race, fight the fight. If there's breath in your lungs, God's not finished with you yet. If you've still got life, then there's life in you and God has a purpose and a plan for you. We just need to keep moving forward. And my final point today, Dean, if you could join me, that would be fantastic. Um, David was a man after God's own heart. We all look to David as this hero, but he was just a boy. He was just a kid. He was just no different to you and me. There was nothing special about him. He wasn't the tallest. He wasn't the strongest. He wasn't the most handsome. In fact, he was so forgettable that his dad forgot about him. When Samuel came to anoint the next king and and asked for all of the sons, he forgot about David. He's a forgettable guy. But David was a man after God's own heart. You see, Saul was the one who was handsome. Saul was the one who had the armour and he was the successful one and he was the one that everyone loved. He was the one that did the right things and he tried to do what he thought was right. But ultimately, it's not about what you do. It's not about everything that you've done for God. It's not about what you do, but it's about having a heart after God. Saul was... Was You look at him and you just see a king. But David was the one who had the, the right heart. You know, you might look after and you might chase after the right clothes. You might look for the right house. You might want the right car. You might want everything that looks good in the world's eyes. But God doesn't look at the things that the world looks at. He looks at the heart. If David's greatness was based on his actions... He would have been in real trouble. And we think of Bathsheba and Uriah. Well, there's many times that David fell short, that David sinned, that David did the wrong thing. But the thing about David and his heart is that every time he fell, he came back to God. Psalm 51. After he'd, after he'd, after he'd um, committed murder with Uriah, after he'd, he'd done what he did with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit in me. I'm the first to admit we're all sinners. We all fall short. But the difference isn't because I look good or I do great things or I have a great house. The difference is in my heart. It's not about not stumbling. It's not about being perfect. But it's about continually coming before God, allowing Him to search our heart, remove any bitterness, any anxiety, any worry, any unforgiveness, and keeping a clean channel between us and God. David says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. You know, this morning, as we gathered here, I'm reminded of what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden after they'd fallen. And he says, where are you? He says, where, where are you? And they're hiding. This morning, I believe God's saying to us, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Is there things inside of us that we hold on to? Bitterness, anxiety, unforgiveness, pride. This morning, I believe that God wants us to allow Him to enter our heart, to cleanse us so that we can walk in the way of everlasting. 
Would you stand with me in this place this morning as we come to a close? I'm just going to take a moment. As we close our eyes and we lift our hands to heaven, why don't we allow God a moment, just like David, allow Him to search our heart, to know our anxieties, for us to be honest and to give those things to Him so that He can lead us in the way everlasting. Why don't we lift our hands to heaven? Why don't we give over to Him our pain, our hurt, our anxieties, fears of 2023, fears for our family, fears for our finances. Holy Spirit, we ask that You take them all. We give them over to You. And we say, come Holy Spirit and anoint us again. Anoint us for 2023. Anoint us for the call of God in our lives. Anoint us again, Holy Spirit. And we ask it in the mighty and precious Name of Jesus. This morning, I believe there was four points and I believe one of them spoke to you. It's anointing. Is it about grit? Is it about serving? Or is it about your heart? You know, church just doesn't finish here. You know, our clock does finish. But why don't you carry those thoughts and as Mary did, hide them in your heart, think on them, ponder them and make room for God to move in your heart this week. Why don't we lift our hands to Him one more time. Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your presence and Your anointing. We thank You that You are perfect, that You know our hearts. And I pray for every person in this building, every person within the sound of my voice, that You would bless them, that You'd cause Your face to shine upon them, You'd give them the anointing and the strength that they need to defeat the giants in their lives. You'd strengthen them with grit and determination to keep moving forward. And we ask, Father, that we would be like David and be people that are after your own heart. And we ask it in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. And a grateful church said together, Amen. Amen. Why don't we give God a hand this morning? He's a good God.